Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. inviting me and we just had such a wonderful conversation um, it's just it's just a joy to be here and I, I don't know this is I, I was here at Limud and I was here a couple years ago and I actually uh, did a retreat for women survivors of breast no of cancer that uh, was through the JCC here um, and I've always had such a warm experience here, so I just want to thank you for coming out. Um, it's a little chilly here. I thought I was in Chicago or something. I think, I think I'm going to focus tonight on a little bit about sort of how I came to write this book and then uh, kind of tell you uh, about how I was led to, to, to meet somebody else because of this book. How's that? Is that good? So I was saying with Shmuley just uh, earlier, he was like, how did you come to write this book? And I said, have you ever had an experience in your life where you felt led? You hadn't planned to do this thing or to meet that person, and then you just were taken there. And sometimes you're lucky you're lucky enough to actually listen so that you're taken on a path instead of running from it. And it leads to a path of blessings. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about what happened and um, sort of how, how my journey led me to somebody very different. I was doing research for a class that I wanted to teach about oneness and about the way that we're all connected to each other. And I was looking up all sorts of sources about that word, echad, and how we're all connected, and how easy it is for us to see people as other, and how important it is for us to be connected. And I came upon this quote that said, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. We're all part of a whole. 
we may see ourselves as separate from the rest, but it's merely an optical delusion. When I read those words, I was blown away. And it sounded like it could have come from a mystic, from the Zohar, but actually it's come to us from Einstein, who is speaking to us not as a mystic, but as a physicist convinced of the unity of all existence. And I found myself turning to that quote over and over again, welcome, and I pasted it on the wall of my study, and every day I would look at it and try to really understand what it means to say that we all suffer from an optical delusion when we see ourselves as separate from one another. And for some reason, and I can't explain why because it had nothing to do with the class that I was teaching or the research that I was doing, I found myself asking, but who? Who was Einstein talking to? Was this statement that he made part of a lecture? Was it part of a chapter of the book? I didn't know because I found it on the internet. <laughs> and it's so easy to misunderstand when you don't have context. And I wanted to know where Einstein had written those words and who he was talking to. And thus began really a four-year journey into the roots of this one quote, a four-sentence quote. It turns out it was a journey that led me to Jerusalem. It led me to New York. It led me to Cincinnati. It led me to dusty attics where I would pick up pieces of paper that would literally crumble in my hands. Turns out that I found out that Einstein had written those words as a letter that he had written those words as a letter to a grieving father. And then I found out that he had written it to a grieving father named Dr. Robert Marcus. And I found myself asking for some unknown reason, who was this doctor? And what in the world did he say to Einstein to elicit this statement about our universe that spoke so personally to me? And it turns out, I did a lot of research and a lot of interviews, and it turns out that this doctor, Robert Marcus, was actually a rabbi. And the minute I heard that it was a rabbi who, in his grief, a grieving father, had written to Einstein, I felt an immediate affinity to this man. And I needed to know more. Who was this rabbi? And what in the world did he say to Einstein? Well, it turns out that Rabbi Robert Marcus was an Orthodox rabbi, a graduate of Yeshiva University. And during World War II, he enlisted and became a chaplain in General Patton's army. He was there on the beaches of Normandy. He was there comforting kids, risking their lives every day. And I read the letters that Rabbi Marcus wrote home about boys who died in his arm. And then, on April 11th, 1945, US troops entered and liberated Buchenwald concentration camp. And Rabbi Marcus was one of the very first to enter Buchenwald 
And as he went into this hellish nightmare, he saw the corpses and he saw the living corpses. And one by one, he turned to them and said, you are free, you are free. And as he walked deeper into this nightmare, he discovers something unbelievable. Children alive. A thousand Jewish boys who had been hidden by the inmates of Buchenwald who he found alive. And as you all know, children were the first to slaughter in the concentration camps. He finds a thousand boys. His colleague, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, actually discovers a little boy hiding in a pile of corpses. These children became Rabbi Marcus's passion. And he took it upon himself to be their mother, their father, their rabbi, their teacher, with arms wide enough and a heart big enough to embrace them all. And of course, every time he looked at the eyes of these children, he also thought about his own family that he left back at home. His wife, Faye, his eldest son, Stephen, who was about eight years old, who was the apple of his eye, of Jay, who was eight, and another boy, Stephen, who was about six, and a little girl, Tammy, who had been born while Rabbi Marcus was overseas and he'd never even met her. Rabbi Marcus becomes instrumental in establishing the, the first of its kind, a farm on German soil for the older children, the teenage kids, to learn how to work the land because he was a passionate Zionist. <coughs> so he wanted to make sure that they learned how to work the land so that they could make Aliyah to Israel. And this farm, the Jewish farm on German soil, was called, of all things, Kibbutz Buchenwald. <laughs> and there the youngsters were learning to plant, they were learning to take care of cows, chickens, to use tractors. And Rabbi Marcus, on his own, finds safe passage. What he does is he fires off a cable to Geneva, to the OSE, which was uh, a Jewish welfare organization based in Switzerland. And he says, have found a thousand Jewish boys in Buchenwald, please make immediate plans to find orphanages for them. And Rabbi Marcus finds his way to personally escort the children of Buchenwald to, to orphanages in France. And on the way, on the, they took the same cattle cars that had taken them and their parents to these concentration camps. And by the way, they were all orphans. Their parents were all gone. And on this ride, um, I actually got to meet a number of, and to interview a number of Buchenwald boys. And one of them, Henry Oster, said to me, Rabbi Marcus was our Moses, leading us from slavery to freedom. But they, the boys would shout out the windows of those cattle cars and say, Nazi murderers, where are our parents? Where are our parents? Rabbi Marcus takes the boys to an orphanage in France. And he doesn't go home. The war is over. He goes back to Germany because he's found safe passage for all the boys and girls of Kibbutz Buchenwald to Israel. And he insists on personally taking them as well on the ship 
to Israel. And on that ship um, was a 16-year-old girl who many of you have come to know her a little bit. Uh, she would come to be known as Dr. Ruth Westheimer. And we spoke about that journey. And she said, Rabbi, the facilities were low, but the optimism was high. And she talked about how they would sing folk song and dance horas on the decks of that ship. And believe it or not, they land on Haifa's port on Rosh Hashanah. And Rabbi Marcus has the honor of leading New Year's services for these kids. And he wrote about it. He said about what it meant to lead high holiday services, welcoming in a new year beneath the clear Mediterranean skies. And he wrote, my kids have come home. Never in my life did it feel so good to be a Jew. Rabbi Marcus finally earns the right to go back home where he's reunited with his wife, Faye, and his eldest, Jay, who's about nine years old, and Stephen, and he finally gets to meet little baby Tammy. But he doesn't go on vacation. He deserves a vacation after what he's seen and what he's been through. But he becomes political director of the World Jewish Congress. And there he begins fighting for the rights of Jews all over the world. And he also begins fighting in the UN for rights that he prophetically understood weren't only for the benefit of Jews, but they would prophetically be for the benefit of all people. He was involved in, the, in structuring that bill of international human rights. And the two things that kept Rabbi Marcus awake at night were the rights of stateless peoples and the rights of refugees. Rabbi Marcus is heading back to Europe to fight for better care for Europe's remaining Jews. And his wife, Faye, decides to go to a bungalow colony with the three kids. Do you guys know what a bungalow colony is? Sure. OK. Just want to make sure. No? So did you ever see the movie Dirty Dancing? Oh, yeah. So that's a bungalow colony. You know, so cabins around a lake, and there's camp for the kids. and Catskills. Yeah. So it seemed like an idyllic idea to go there with the kids. But polio struck, and it spread like wildfire through the children. And all three of Rabbi Marcus's children contract polio. But his eldest, Jay, who was now 11 years old, whose soul was intertwined with his own, dies almost instantly. And Rabbi Marcus raced back home, but he was too late. And in his guilt and in his grief, he writes to Einstein for help. And Einstein writes him back these words. The bulk of the book is to understand what Einstein was really saying. And my personal belief that there's a piece of us that does understand that we're all interconnected. And I believe that piece is the soul. That our eyes don't necessarily 
see as expansively as what Einstein was describing. Our, our eyes see the optical delusion, but there's a piece within us and a place within us that can understand how connected we really all are to each other and what it means to be led on a journey. So I wanted to share with you, I'll get back to Rabbi Marcus, but I can tell you this. He died at age 41, leaving behind a wife who was 35, bereft of her eldest child, with two little ones to care for, and as I would later learn, she was pregnant, eight months pregnant. Led on a journey. When Rabbi Marcus enters Buchenwald, he fires off a cable to Geneva. And there was a woman, a young woman, on the other end of that cable. Somebody had to pick up the cable. She was 21 years old, and her name was Judith. Judith was born in Germany, and their family made their way to France. And Judith's father was rounded up and slaughtered in Auschwitz. And miraculously, she and her mother managed to escape across the border to Switzerland. And she's 21 years old, and here she has this piece of paper, and she's reading the list of the names of the boys who have survived Buchenwald. And the minute she sees this list, she says to herself, I have to go meet these boys. Why? She doesn't know why. She doesn't know why, but she just needed to see these boys. Right now, they're just names on a list, but she needed to see the boys. What can I tell you about Judith? She has no formal training. She's 21 years old. Her father's been murdered. She's volunteering for, for this welfare organization. <laughs> you know, it's like when, um, when I had my daughter, and you know, people would be like, who's disturbing and so who doesn't quiet their baby? And it would be mine, you know? So, um, she suffered, she couldn't, she had no appetite. She had terrible problem eating because she was so traumatized. And the only other thing I can tell you is that she had severe insomnia. She just, she could not sleep. So she couldn't eat and she couldn't sleep. And here she is wanting to meet these boys. The war's over, she can go. What can I tell you about these boys that Rabbi Marcus discovered? Here's what I can tell you. The social workers and the doctors at the orphanage that were about to receive these boys were expecting to be receiving polite, <laughs> grateful, pathetic children who would just be so thankful for every morsel of food and for every act of kindness. Guess what? That's not what they received at all. These boys were belligerent, they were angry, they were violent, they all looked identical with their shaved heads and black circles around their eyes. They trusted nobody 
especially not the doctors, who they all feared were like the sadists, like the, the famed Dr. Mengele of Auschwitz, because most of these boys had been to Auschwitz and the death march to Buchenwald. They had no affect. They had no emotion. <coughs> they trusted nobody, and they stole constantly. If it wasn't attached or nailed down, they took it, particularly if it was food. So you could be sure that at a meal, everything went into the pockets. Nothing was left. And the specialists, the psychologists, the therapists, the social workers, passed a judgment on the boys that they were damaged beyond repair. That what they'd experienced in the war was so harrowing that they were damaged beyond repair and that they were basically rendered derelicts with no affect and with no ability to connect or to socialize or to react appropriately in this world. Just as an example, one day they brought camembert cheese, French cheese to the boys as, as a special treat. The boys took a whiff of this cheese and were convinced that they were being poisoned and began in a rage throwing it at their counselors, at their therapists, at the people who were there taking care of them. So this is the environment that Judith can't wait to meet these boys. So she travels to one of the orphanages where these boys that Rabbi Marcus had taken. And she sees these boys. And she sees the blank stare. She witnesses the violence. She witnesses the thievery. She witnesses everything. It's a Thursday. She sees how the other social workers, counselors treat the boys like their lost cause. But then Shabbos arrives, and she watches how the boys daven. And as they're davening, as they're praying, she immediately believes that they are not damaged beyond repair because she sees the devotion. She sees that somebody has taught these children well. She spends Shabbos there. The boys pay her no attention. They couldn't care less about her. They are back to their fighting and everything else. Sunday morning, the orphanage director ups and quits. He says, I can't take it anymore. I can't take their rudeness, their behavior, their violence. And he, again, passes a judgment on the boys. And this is his diagnosis of the boys. This is his diagnosis in their charts. The boys were born psychopaths, cold and indifferent by nature. I'm quoting. He reasoned that it was their callous personalities that had enabled these boys to survive the camps in the first place when so many other children had died. So this orphanage director takes it a step further. It isn't that the war has damaged these boys beyond repair. No, no, no. These boys were psychopaths to begin with, 
and the good boys all died. It was just the thieving psychopaths by the means of their thievery that, that they managed to survive the war when the good boys all died. So the OSE, the Welfare Organization in Geneva, contacts Judith as she's visiting this orphanage and says, Judith, we need you to take over the orphanage. She's 21 years old. She can't eat. She can't sleep. She has zero training. She's not a teacher. She's not a social worker. She's never directed anything. Judith says, I'll do it. There's 100 boys who are violent and thieves. And Judith says, I'll do it. They range in age from 6 to 16. Some of these teenage boys are bigger than she is. And I know because she's, I met Judith at 95 years of age in Jerusalem. And I said, Judith, weren't you scared? And she said, no. I was very sure of myself. I said, you were? You weren't even a tiny bit scared? She said, no. I knew I was the right man for the job. <laughs> So Judith has quite a task in front of her, a hundred derelicts. And she knows that somehow she has to find the way to crack this situation. So the first thing she realizes, and this is all instinctive, she realizes that she has to learn Yiddish overnight because the boys are never going to relate to her or warm to her in her native German. And they don't, any of them, speak a word of French. That's A. And she does. She just, within days, learns Yiddish. The next thing she realizes is that she needs to learn every child's name overnight. Because up to now, if you ask a boy, what's your name? Do you know what he answers? He answers with a number. And she said, if you could look at a boy and say, good morning, Moshe Cohen, immediately, she said, I wouldn't see a smile, but some kind of human recognition. I'm not a number. I might even be a person. So she learns instantly everybody's name. And then she realizes there are things she has to solve. And if she doesn't solve them, the boys are never going to be able to acclimate to the world. <coughs> so the first thing she has to deal with is the thievery. Because when you steal things, every day it does something to your soul. If you're always stealing, it does something to you. So she thinks about it, and a light bulb goes off in her head. You could think about it. How would you prevent the boys from stealing at every meal? We can't, we could, we can't judge them. We know why they're stealing. But how do you solve it? Judith calls all the boys together in the orphanage, just like this, into one room. 
And she looks at them and she says, boys, from today on, the kitchen of the orphanage is open 24-7. It's your kitchen. And you never have to worry about food again because it's your kitchen. You can come and take whenever you want. So you never have to take, steal anything ever again because the kitchen is your kitchen. Guess what happened? Overnight, the stealing stopped. Overnight, the stealing stopped. But something unexpected happened beyond that. The kitchen became the soul of the orphanage. And the orphanage started to become a home. And the boys would hang out in the kitchen because they loved to watch Judith and her assistant in the kitchen cooking. It reminded them of home, of the smell of the kitchen, of mama cooking. And the boys loved that. And they also developed a mad crush on Judith's assistant, who was apparently quite beautiful. <laughs> and there was one boy, there was one boy who didn't hang out in the kitchen. He didn't hang out with the other boys. He was always scribbling in a journal, always scribbling in a notebook. And Judith made note of him. And she was trying to decide, is this antisocial behavior? Or is this too, is this writing the beginning of a healing? She kept her eyes on him. The next thing Judith needs to solve is the violence. And it was no small matter. This was not small. Boys were getting deeply injured, hospital visits, needs for stitches. The Polish boys beat up the Hungarian boys, and the Hungarian boys would beat up the Polish boys. How is she going to solve this? There was so much rage in them, rightfully so, but they were taking it out on each other. Judith calls all the boys together, and she realizes something as she's looking at them. The orphanage director who quit had grouped the boys in rooms according to age. Mm -hmm. Judith looks at the boys, and she goes, boys, from today... You're going to leave this room, and I'd like you to group yourselves according to shtetl and village. And immediately, the boys left the room, and the next thing you knew, there would be a six-year-old living with a 16-year-old in the same room. But it was comfort. The six-year-old looked up to the 16-year-old, and the 16-year-old doted over the 6-year-old, and they proudly wrote the name Ludge, Ustrava, the name of their shtetl on the door. And guess what? Overnight, the fighting stops. Day by day by day, Judith is seeing these boys turn from 
what appears to be soulless, defective people to these beautiful souls who are coming out of their shell. She gives them space to share with her what they've been through, who they lost. And then Yom Kippur arrives. And the hour of Yisker arrives. And one more time, a fight breaks out. Because half the boys say, we must recite Kaddish for our parents. And the other half of the boys say, absolutely not. What a disgrace. There still could be hope. How dare we recite Kaddish? We have no idea. <coughs> so half the boys stomp out of the service. And the 50 who remain stand up and in one voice <coughs> begin and Judith saw the tears. These were the first tears that they were able to shed. And she said, those who were able to recite that Kaddish, she noticed a transformation in them, that they were able to accept and that they were able to remember and to honor. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And soon, one by one, Judith was able to find relatives, some going to South America, some going to Israel, some going to Canada, some going to Australia. And Judith understood this was not going to be easy for these boys to integrate. Who could possibly understand them? And she would get these letters from the boys. Judith, tell me there's still a place, that you're holding a place for me because I want to come back. No one understands me. They stare at the numbers on my arm. No one understands me. Tell me I can come back. And Judith had to literally sit on her hands to give enough time to not reply to these letters instantly, to give the boys time. And one by one by one, the boys were leaving until two years later, her nest was empty. Judith was all of 23 years old and an empty nester. But she felt very proud. She felt that she had given the children the resources that they would need. And there was a great life ahead of her. Love, marriage, three children, 15 great uh, grandchildren, 64 great-grandchildren. <laughs> and what becomes of those derelicts damaged beyond repair. The psychopaths, they became successful, respected businessmen, an accountant, an artist, a surgeon, an electrical engineer. Menashe, one of the boys who loved leading the services, took his rightful place as the leader of a Hasidic dynasty in Brooklyn who published 25 volumes of commentary and became the head of a Talmudic academy. Naftali, 
became a journalist for Haaretz, and then became Moshe Dayan's right-hand man. He became spokesman for the IDF, and there went on to become Israel's consul general in New York. His little brother, Lulik, went on to become Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, the chief Ashkenazi rabbi of Israel. Kalman Kalikstein became a world-famous nuclear physicist and a professor at NYU. And then there was the scribbler. He wrote the first draft of Night under Judith's care in that orphanage. Judith went on to write a book. Well, actually, she became a social worker, and she got a PhD. And her thesis was about her Buchenwald boys, which she then published as a book. And you know who wrote the foreword to that book. Dear Judith, did you know, Judith, that we pitied you? We felt so sorry for you. You thought you could educate us? We observed you with amusement and distrust. How did you succeed, Judith, to tame us? It could not have been easy to educate a group of children like us with our peculiarities and our obsessions, nor did you have any guidelines. We didn't want your help. We didn't want your understanding. Judith, do you realize how much you meant to our very existence? Signed, Ellie Wiesel. Some 20 years after, Judith gets an invitation in the mail. It was from her Buchenwald boys. They were celebrating the liberation of Buchenwald in New York, and they paid her ticket. And she said there was no way in the world she was going to miss this occasion. She flew to New York, and she said along the way, she clutched a, a group photograph that had been taken of the boys, praying that she would recognize them. And she gets off the plane in JFK, and there they were, her boys. These were back in the days where you could still greet somebody <laughs> after they get off the plane with a bouquet of flowers for her. And I said, Judith, what was that moment like? And she said, let's just say it was a very emotional meeting. And I said, did you recognize them? And she said, some of them. <laughs> she said many of them had long gray beards. One of them, who they used to call Gingy because he had red hair, was now bald. <laughs> But the boys treated each other like brothers, like they were still children. And then the night of this reunion, of this commemoration, and Menasha, the one who became a Hasidic rabbi, led them in Shehachianu. And then he stood up and he said, tonight's gathering serves as a continuation of that Yom Kippur when some of us refused to participate in Yisker, refused because we thought there was still hope. Today we know that our parents and our relatives will never return. 
Let us rise and think of them. Let us say Kaddish. <coughs> and together now, all of them, in one voice, with tears streaming down their face, welcome. <laughs> they began, Yiskadal v'yiskadash shemer now that's interesting. <laughs> and then it came time to honor the woman who had given them back their lives. And I said, Judith, what did they say to you? And she said, let's just say it was a very emotional evening. <laughs> And then Judith asked me to read the letter that Einstein had written to Rabbi Marcus, the letter that had led me to Rabbi Marcus and that had led me to Judith. I read it to Judith. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He may see himself as separate from the rest, but it's merely an optical delusion. Judah said, read it again. <laughs> I read it again. She said, one more time. She closed her eyes. I read it again. She said, yes. And then she looked up and she said, well, dear, I'd love to continue speaking with you, but you see, I have a piano lesson now. <laughs> and then there she was, sitting on a bench in front of a baby grand piano with her piano teacher working on mastering a classical piece. It took me a number of years, actually, three years, to find a way to get to Elie Wiesel. I tried everything. I wanted to hear what Elie Wiesel had to say about Rabbi Marcus and what he had to say about Judith. But every time I reached out, I got the same answer. His schedule's fully booked. His schedule's fully booked. His schedule's fully booked. But I was um, undeterred, <laughs> and I tried to pull Every string I knew how to pull, every rabbinic string, uh, but nobody was able to help me to get to Elie Wiesel. And actually somebody, a colleague of mine who knew Elie very well said that um, his memory may not be what it used to be. And he may be protected right now from meeting with you or from speaking to you. And he may not remember Rabbi Marcus, and he may not remember Judith. But I persisted, and one day I got a call that Elie Wiesel wanted to speak with me. And as you can imagine, the day of our phone call, my heart was just beating in my chest. I still worried that Ellie might not have much to tell me about Rabbi Marcus, 
But I was so grateful and honored to be able to speak with him. And then I asked my first question. Do you perhaps remember a man named Rabbi Robert Marcus? Ellie said, do I remember? He said, I saw a soldier appear with a magenta veed sewn onto his military uniform. He said to me, this meant a lot. Up to that moment for us, a magenta veed on your clothing was the mark of death. And here suddenly, it was the mark of freedom. That's not something you'd forget. Then Ellie told me about the power of that moment when Rabbi Marcus led the very first prayer service in Buchenwald. He said to me, we prayed all the time in Buchenwald, but this was different. It was a great happiness, surprising. It meant a great deal that we could pray with him. Ellie told me that he was in awe of Rabbi Marcus. He said, Naomi, the distance from us boys to Rabbi Marcus was like the distance from the earth to the sun. Seventy years had passed, but his memories of that time had not faded. And then I spoke with Ellie about Judith, the young woman who took charge of his orphanage. I asked Ellie, what stood out for you about Judith? He said, her smile. I asked, could you feel her confidence? He said, oh yes, absolutely. We all felt it. She came from a place of security and happiness. She created a safe place for us. Judith knew what we needed. With kindness, Ellie allowed me to probe into those days with Judith. I asked him, did you know when you first arrived at the orphanage that you and all the boys had been diagnosed as damaged beyond repair? Ellie replied in a voice filled with pain and understanding, yes, I was aware of that. Ellie told me, about the day when Judith organized the rooms by village. He said, it was a powerful moment. <laughs> I asked Ellie if he remembered Nini, that was Judith's assistant, the hot one. <laughs> it turned out that Ellie too had a mad crush on the beautiful Nini and that he actually wrote love poems to her. <laughs> then I spoke with Ellie about the day that the boys argued over whether they should say the Kaddish or not. Ellie told me he was one of the boys who stayed to recite that Kaddish. He told me that even from a distance of 70 years, it was too difficult for him to speak about that day with me. I said to Ellie, Judith told me she saw hope return to the boys. Did Judith give you hope? Ellie said, it's a very strong word, hope. I'm not sure I'd use that word. What word would you use, I asked. Hopefully, I'll find it one day. <laughs> Hopefully. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked Ellie the question I'd been longing to ask him. If he knew about a letter Rabbi Marcus had written to Einstein after the death of his son, Jay. Ellie told me he did not. I read Ellie Einstein's letter to Rabbi Marcus, and then I asked him, what was the most important thing that got you through your worst times? 
Without missing a beat, Ellie replied, friendship. Without a doubt, friendship. Yes, friendship, of course. As Ellie spoke, I was beginning to see threads of connection. The way you can be a friend even to a total stranger. How Rabbi Marcus was there for Elie Wiesel, and how Einstein was there for Rabbi Marcus. Strangers who reached beyond themselves to lift up and save another. People who rose above that optical delusion of separateness. We all are part of a whole And you never know how a stranger is going to enter your life and save you and lift you and liberate you from the delusion that you're alone. How are we doing with time? At that moment, I was about to say thank you and hang up. But then I realized that I owed Ellie Wiesel my gratitude, not for agreeing to do this interview, but for an act of kindness he bestowed upon me many years ago without even knowing it. I needed to thank him, and I might never have another chance. So before I hung up, is that my phone? So before I hung up with Ellie, I hesitated, but then I gathered up my courage because I just knew I had to tell him how he had saved my life. I said to Ellie, listen, I need to tell you something. I assume you must hear this from so many people, how you've helped them, but I need to tell you what you did for me in my life. It was quiet for a minute. And then Ellie said, you cannot imagine how moved I am right now. Tell me. Tell me what happened. And so I began. I said, I grew up in Brooklyn. I said, my father taught me from the time I was a small child, he began teaching me Torah and commentaries and had a daven too. He'd take me to show with him every Shabbos, and I would sit beside him and play with the strands of his talus. I told Ellie about the night when I was 15 years old and how my parents were walking down the street and a man came at them at gunpoint and shot my father. I told him about my father's murder and how I was such an angry kid, so angry and lost and sad. I said to him I didn't have a plan for ending my life, but I didn't have any plan for living either. I was only 15 years old, and I felt like I had already come to the end of things. My father was gone. My mother wasn't the same woman anymore. Shabbos wasn't the same. I wasn't the same. Prayer? How could prayer be the same? And what good was God anyway? I said, At that lowest point of my life, my mom saw that you were giving a lecture, and she asked me to go with her. I didn't want to go, 
But she encouraged me and I went. It was a freezing cold December night and we took the subway all the way from Borough Park up to the 92nd Street Y. I said I walked into this massive auditorium full of old people and I so didn't want to be there. We were sitting in the second to the last row and I so regretted that I'd agreed to come to this thing. But then all of a sudden, the lights went down and you walked on stage and sat down at a desk with just a spotlight on you and began speaking. At first I was daydreaming as you spoke, but then your words began to seep into my well-defended heart. Yes, your words were sinking in. The kindness of your voice and your hands were performing to the words you spoke all of their own. I remember being transfixed by your hands and realizing it was the first time I experienced beauty since the day my father died. I was mesmerized, watching and listening to you, a man who had been to hell and back, and seeing you offer beauty to the world gave me some sort of spark of hope. And somehow that night, you opened a door for me to step through. That night was the beginning, a first step in many steps that would lead me back bit by bit out of the depths that had threatened to overtake me. I said to him, many years have passed and I've had many causes for joy. And I just wanna thank you for teaching me that there was hope in my future and that I would have cause to celebrate and to give thanks. I said to Ellie, a man stands in front of an auditorium of 2,000 people, and he has no idea that he's just opened a new door for some lost 15-year-old kid who is listening and taking it all in. Ellie said to me, you cannot imagine how touched I am right now. Sadly, Ellie died not long after our intimate conversation. And I will treasure the precious wisdom he shared with me always and the final words we spoke to each other. He said, Naomi, you found your way. You are a blessing, I replied. So are you, he said. Don't you forget that. <clears throat> Believe in that. More and more blessings. More and more blessings to you, Ellie, in this world and beyond. And more and more blessings to you. May you see connections and may you seize those connections, the sacred threads that unite us all. I, I don't know if I'm mixing up memories or did you speak at the 92nd Y with Juliana Michael? I did. Okay, Were I, you there? No, but I it was it was uh, broadcast. I, I I watched it. Yeah, so, Juliana and I are old friends, I and um, she read the book, and she was so overjoyed to be able to have that dialogue with me at the Y. And how strange was it that that was the very place mm -hmm. 
that was the beginning of my opening. And it was almost like life coming full circle, literally. I remember crying at the television listening to that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So the book isn't that story. It's many stories. It's many stories, but it, it focuses really on the soul and how to open yourself and open your soul. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a little bit of information of how you came to, to writing the book the way it is based on all this knowledge? I really believe that what Judith was doing was healing souls and reconnecting the boys to their souls. And as I said earlier, I do believe in an eternal soul. And I do believe that the soul sees what our eyes can't see. And the soul knows truths that we sometimes ignore and that we sometimes run from. The rabbis actually say that the soul can see from one end of the world to the other. And I do believe that it's that part of us that knows that we really are all connected, even the living and the dead. And we spend so much of our lives ignoring that voice, running from it, denying it, um, listening to other voices that are more powerful, more strident. And I really believe that the journey of life and the journey of this book is to get acquainted with our souls, to nourish our souls because I believe that they're in a state of deprivation from not being fed and um, to attaining higher and higher level, levels of soul knowledge. And I speak about different ways that we can both feed the soul, and I say, nourish the soul, and it will nourish you. Give the soul what it wants, and it will begin showing you what you're capable of and what you were put here for, what God wants from you. So, yeah. <clears throat> um, I've only gotten up to 100 pages in your book, so I don't know if, you, if, if you're the final answer that I'm going to ask you is in the book. Einstein was a scientist. Uh, he makes conclusions based on evidence. So what led him to the statement uh, that you start out your, your book? Is there, is there evidence that he comes up with and says, A, B, C? You know, it's interesting. Um, Einstein was deeply influenced by Spinoza. And he did believe in a creator, but he did not believe 
in a personal God. In a a personal God. He did not believe in a God who answers prayers, as an example. He did not. Um, But he did deeply believe in a creator, and he believed in the beauty of mystery and of wonder and of imagination, and that a human being that, that really at the root of scientific discovery was wonderment, humility, imagination, and mystery. Um, he was sort of, he wasn't by training a philosopher, but um, actually the New York Times published a piece back in the 50s saying that this letter that Rabbi, that Einstein wrote to Rabbi Marcus was deeply philosophical and one of the more, one of the most poignant things Einstein has ever written. Uh, the second part to the question. Yes. As far as this connection, what do you feel about the concept of Melitz Yosher? In other words, what happens in the next world? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is I haven't been. (laughs) Um, And uh, although the Talmud certainly and the Hasidic literature is full of people coming back to share their stories from the other side, uh, there's actually a a famous one in the Talmud about a rabbi coming back to talk about his friend asked him, so what was death like? What was the moment of death like? And he said, the moment of death is as simple and painless as drying a strand of hair out of a cup of milk. He goes, then again, if the Holy One were asked me to return to this world, I would refuse. Because the fear of death is so overwhelming. Um, I do believe in an eternal soul. I believe in a soul that pre-exists, and I believe that the soul is eternal and lives on after the body loses life here. But what that life looks like, um, I can't say. And thankfully, one of the beauties of our tradition is that it doesn't offer us any dogma, any monolithic vision of what that eternity looks like. In, In fact, You can't speak of the Jewish view of the afterlife. All you can say is that there are Jewish views of the afterlife. And they're very different. I mean, there's everything from Gilgul Neshamot, really reincarnation, to this concept of Gan Eden, of of, of some, some kind of idyllic heaven. Uh, to the soul returning to the place of eternity. But I certainly do believe that the soul is eternal. I do. Yes? You spoke about the boys who survived. And in your opinion, was it nature or nurture that enabled them to survive? In other words, they were condemned. They were written off. It's kindness. To survive the war or to survive life? I thought of the war, but even after. In other words, 
what enabled them to survive is that in Buchenwald, they were hidden by the inmates of Buchenwald. No, no, internally, you said they were condemned, that they were... They were, they were diagnosed as damaged beyond repair, but they weren't. They needed, they needed the proper understanding and to be in the hands of people who could help them. And I can't speak to every single survivor. I can only speak to this particular orphanage and what happened. I, I certainly know, look, I know many survivors from growing up in Brooklyn and in, in, in my own family. Some people were fortunate to have somebody like a Judith to take them under their wing. Some people weren't, and still they found their way. Thank God. Yeah. Is there some reason that it was the boys who were saved instead of girls and boys? You know, I can't answer that question. All I can tell you is in Buchenwald, all they found alive were boys. Uh, by the way, I just saw this film called Never Look Away. I'd like to ask you all to go watch it, to go see it. It was nominated for the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. And I know that uh, the film Roma has been sort of lauded as the brilliant film. But I'm telling you, go see this movie, Never Look Away. I'm not going to say much more because I don't want to spoil it for you. But go see it. It's three hours, and it passes like it was five minutes. OK? Uh, yes. Wait, how many other hands are there? So I'm just keeping track of time. OK, right here. Did you already ask a question? You didn't ask no, a question. I didn't OK. Ask a question. Yeah, mine is not a question. For those of you who have not read the book, this book, I am an 80-year-old psychologist. I've been married, divorced, remarried, have children, grandchildren, blah, have full, wonderful life. This book and this woman has changed my life. Not only does she tell the story, but she tells from her heart, and she tells from her neshama what has happened in her life and how she makes, she makes roses out of dust. <laughs> she makes beauty where there is none and how she survives herself and how she shares and has the ability to share this knowledge is unbelievable. And I have such a gratitude to you for having written this book and for being who you are that I just needed to share that. God bless you. Thank you. OK, you're going to be our last voice. Oh, dear. OK. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, um, I've always been curious about Einstein and his Judaism. And he, from what I have found, never came out and said that he believed in God, but he said that he believed there was an order in the universe. Yes. And that there was something yes. behind yes. that. So I just wanted to make that comment. But my other question <clears throat> is, if these boys were hidden, how did they have numbers on their arms? Wait, I just wanted to read to you that pretty, um, give me one second, okay? Let me just think where it was in the book. I guess I can, ah, here we go. It's, it's in subtitles. There's this one chapter in the book 
where, again, everything leads to something else, but I opened up the New York Times one day when I had sort of hit a dead end, and I opened it up, and there's 20, a picture of 24 girls that, that after the war, um, they had no clothing, they were dressed in rags, and a US Army soldier uh, wanted to buy them fabric. And he goes into a shop, and he says to the shopkeeper, I want to buy this bolt of fabric, and the shopkeeper refused. So he took out his pistol, and he convinced the shopkeeper to sell him the fabric. And he gave the girls this fabric, and they sewed 24 identical dresses. And this photo in the New York Times has these girls, 24 of them, and in the center, Rabbi Marcus. So it's a, it's a crazy story um, how the, the interviews that I had about that, those girls. One of the interviews led me to this woman who told me that her mother, believe it or not, this is just so crazy, her father was in charge of that district in Germany where those girls, I mean, he was a US soldier, and he became, he fell, it fell into his hand to take care of that district. And she goes, is that why, that's why I'm, I'm reaching out to you? And she said, but, but my mother, now that you've mentioned Einstein, my mother lived in Einstein's house because Einstein fled and he had a country house in an area called Kaput in, Black, in, in Germany. And he opened it up to Jewish orphans. And she, and she told me this whole story about, so Einstein, uh, when he used to go to this place, he would write there. And in this place that was by a lake, he wrote his famous treatise, What I Believe. He would sail there, and he would compose. And it was an essay where he articulated the foundation of his faith. The most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead a snuffed out candle, to sense that behind anything that can be experienced, there is something that our minds cannot grasp, whose beauty and sublimity reaches us only indirectly. This is religiousness in this sense, and in this sense only, I am a devoutly religious man. Einstein's house that he gave to the, or to the Jewish children who were trying to flee Germany became a boarding house for the Nazi Hitler youth. Everything yeah. is connected. I want to thank you for coming tonight. I want to thank you for listening. Hashem imachem. May God be with you.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.